sorry, you might be a little out of the loop. We're starting a new study today uh, on the book, The Christ of the Covenants. Um, so we can get a copy to anybody who needs one. Alternatively, I found out this week that this book is available as an audio book if you use Hoopla. Uh, so if you're connected, <coughs> excuse me, if you're connected to your local library uh, and you use that to get audiobooks, uh, there's a really, um, it doesn't change the content, uh, but it is a good audio quality version, uh, audiobook, good recording quality uh, of this book. And that might just be another way either to supplement your reading or a way to, uh, to get it uh, firsthand anyway. Uh, so we're going to begin. Let me open in prayer, and we'll start our discussion. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your covenant faithfulness. We thank you that you are the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for generations. You're the one who uh, reached down to make promises to uh, Noah and Abraham, uh, to, uh, to David. Uh, you make uh, the promise to us. Uh, in Christ, and there are others as well. But as we study, we pray that you would help us to see the fundamental unity of what you're doing with your people, uh, the way that you interact with us, your graciousness in condescending to speak in ways that we can hear, to promise in ways that we can trust, uh, and to commit yourself to us even though we ourselves are covenant breakers. We pray above all that we would see your faithfulness in this study. We pray that we would see your promise before the foundations of the world to unite all things together in Christ. We pray that we would see his uh, work on our behalf and know him as our substitute. We pray that you would help us as we uh, go through this book, not only to understand what Robertson is teaching us, not only to parse out his arguments and his language, but help us to know more of your scripture, help us to know more of our Savior, and in turn, help us to love you better and to rejoice and to worship in you in spirit and truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before we turn to any other text, I want to ask you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. This is probably a familiar passage for many of you. This is where the Lord declares the new covenant that he's going to make with his people. But he connects this new covenant uh, with the old covenants that he's already made. Uh, and he shows us the way that he is going to fulfill all that he has required of his people. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, as you read that, as you listen to it, you see some similarities. And we're not going to take time to, to parse all this out yet. There is going to be another chapter, another time, when we really dive into this new covenant idea. And we see what's going on here in Jeremiah. We see it connected to Jesus Christ. You may be aware that this 
is a passage that's often quoted in the New Testament, especially in Hebrews, over and over again. Uh, this idea that God makes a new covenant where he forgives the sins of his people. But I want you to notice, just in passing as we see that text, how, uh, how it's related to previous covenants that the Lord has made. He says, look, it's going to be different from the other covenants, so there's a basis for what he's already done, and that serves as a basis for what he's doing. It's not going to be exactly like that other covenant that I made when I brought them out of Egypt, that is the Mosaic covenant, and what's going to be different? Well, they broke it, uh, but now I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'll give them the covenant, stip covenant stipulations and commands, not only on tablets of stone, but I'll write it on their hearts. It will be an internal work that I will do in my people. God says, I will forgive their sins and their iniquities. I will cast them away from me. Uh, but notice also that this relates to the Abrahamic covenant. Notice that he says, here's the covenant I'm going to make. I will be their God and they will be my people. And we say, wait, that sounds an awful lot like Genesis 17. Uh, that sounds like God's promise to Abraham at the time of circumcision. And so what we see in the new covenant, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which unites what we think of the Old and the New Testaments, uh, what we see of the new covenant is that it's not something that just appears ex nihilo. It, it doesn't just come out of nowhere, but there's a foundation, there's a basis for what God has already done with his people in the Old Testament and what he's going to do with his people in the New Testament through Christ. And that's one of the most important things that I hope we see together as we go through this book, The Christ of the Covenants, is this fundamental unity. And in fact, we're going to talk about that next week when we get to chapter 3, much more in depth. Now, this idea that God's covenants are united across all of salvation history, all that he's done for his people, we don't think about uh, God's work with, with humanity and his salvation as being able to be sliced into neat little compartments uh, where God is doing different things at different times, but rather this idea that God is working one salvation for his people through all times. And so I wanted to start with that today. Now, as we begin to orient ourselves, uh, I've decided for this class, at least when I lead, uh, it's also going to be led by some of our elders, and they're going to take uh, some of the time to, to go through some of these chapters. When I lead, I've decided that we're going to have a low-tech class. Uh, I like to have a slideshow uh, when we go through topics. That's helpful just for me to arrange my thoughts and hopefully for you to arrange your thoughts. But when we're looking at a text, whether we're looking at a biblical text or when we're walking through a book together, something like this, I think it's actually better that we don't have all the distraction of the screen and, uh, and the PowerPoint presentation. And that's because I'm hoping for this to be uh, more of a discussion. Uh, and when we have a PowerPoint presentation, we are structured. Uh, and the structure comes from my brain, and it's imposed on your brain, and we have to go through slide one through slide 35, or however many I've prepared. Uh, now, we've got the text, and, and I gave you this uh, handout, uh, and, it, and it's got uh, two pages, one front and back, and you'll see that. Um, and so we've got all the information in front of us, and I want us to feel free, depending on where, uh, where your interest lies and in what we've read, or depending on the questions that you have, now, I want us to feel free to sort of move back and forth, uh, but barring anybody who, who has a strong inclination to jump ahead, uh, we will walk through uh, sequentially. So what I've given you in this, uh, this outline, the first, front and back, this is simply my version. Uh, cliff notes for those of you who haven't read it yet, uh, or maybe who will read it again later. Just a cliff notes version, what's happening in these chapters? Just a summary. Uh, broken down in the, the subheadings that Robertson gives us in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, and I try to pull out some important quotes that will give you a sense for what he's arguing. 
Uh, and then the second section, so that, this is just a resource for you. If you want it, uh, keep it. If you don't want it, throw it away. Um, and, and the other one is uh, a, a list of discussion questions. So here's somewhere that we can start, something that we can use to orient ourselves. We're not bound to this. Again, we want to just have a discussion about what we've read, but we also want to bring out some of the things that we see here. So uh, with that, uh, let's begin uh, at the beginning of this discussion question section. Before we really dive into the meat of what he's saying in chapters 1 and 2, just a broad question for you, um, and maybe a survey first. How many of you, before this class or before reading this book, how many of you were already familiar with the term or the idea of covenant theology? Show of hands. Great many of you, but not everybody. Okay, how many of you have done uh, intentional study, whether formally uh, in a class like this or, or just on your own, reading and studying? How many of you have done study to try and understand what covenant theology is all about? Okay, a smaller number of hands, but still quite a few. Good. Hopefully, this will build on what you already know. And if you're new to this material, hopefully, this will give you uh, a basis for, for what we're doing. So uh, many of you are already familiar. So what's the, what's the value for us, in a sense, then? Here's where we want to start. What, uh, why study covenant theology at all? Uh, what's the benefit to our faith? Uh, and and I, can, I have a few answers for some of these, and I'll tell you what the session was thinking when we put this class together. Uh, but what's the benefit of studying uh, theology or the scriptures or our relationship with the Lord or, or anything else? What's the benefit of seeing it covenantally? Why should uh, we think that this is a good thing to do? Ronnie first. Yeah, yeah, and, and I've touched on that a little bit already, and, and that's, uh, that's very true. That, that is one of the major reasons that we wanted to study this together. The, the session wanted us to see that. Um, so uh, the idea is that there is a unity to the scriptures. Uh, you know, right now we are uh, reading, uh, for our New Testament reading here, uh, the Gospel of John. And I've often said to people, if, uh, if you want to understand the Gospel of John, uh, if you really want to dig deep, what you need to do is open the Gospel of John in one copy of Scriptures and open the prophecy of Isaiah in the other copy uh, because John is constantly, uh, he, he draws on a lot of Old Testament ideas, but there's so much Isaiah in John's Gospel, and you see it over and over and over again in these themes. And so when we begin to think of God's, God's work covenantally, we begin to see these threads that connect all of what we uh, are studying together, whether we're in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and that helps us to see when we are in the Old Testament, like now in Ecclesiastes. What does Ecclesiastes have to do uh, with being New Testament Christians? Well, much in every way, uh, because what God does is not different from one time period to another time period, uh, and that helps us to see it. So, so it helps us to see the unity of the scriptures. Great. Dave, I saw your hand as well. Dave Babbitt. I'm sorry, what was that? <laughs> okay. So Dave says if we want to have a squabble, we want to have a theological discussion, th it will give us some grounding. You know, I got, a, I got an email question this week, uh, and this actually is a, a good point to make as well, Dave. I got an email this, uh, question this week asking, uh, 
who is Robertson writing against? Uh, and that's a good question, actually. Um, because if all you know is Reformed theology and Covenant theology, uh, the, the question that came to me was, it sounds uh, a little harsh, almost, that, that it sounds like he's really beating a drum here, almost like he's arguing not just for something, but against something. Now, actually, he is. <laughs> uh, he is arguing against something. Uh, and, and we will take time, when we get to chapter 11, to see really what the, the backbone of the argument is here. But you need to know that there is a distinction between the way Reformed Christians, uh, such as us, we Presbyterians, um, the way that we look at covenant theology and the way that it ties scripture together, and the way that I would say probably the prevailing evangelical view in America sees things. Uh, that prevailing evangelical view is known uh, really by the term dispensationalism, uh, and that points out to the fact that uh, they believe that there is not a fundamental unity. There are different flavors, different expressions of dispensationalism. Uh, it, it really can be traced back to uh, Charles Ryrie and his study Bible, uh, and, uh, and really only about 120, 130 years ago when it really came into prominence. But the, the essential point, we'll, we'll study a lot more in chapter 11, the essential point is that dispensationalists uh, see scripture and God's dealing with humanity as something that can be divided into different periods of time, which they call dispensations. Further, they would argue that not only uh, can we divide what God did here and what he did there, uh, but they would say God was doing essentially different things. So there is a church in the Old Testament in a sense, that's national Israel, and there's a church in the New Testament sense, and salvation happens for each group in slightly different ways. So for the Old Testament Israelites, salvation happened by observation of the law, by fulfilling the Mosaic law that was given to them. But for the New Testament believer, we are saved by salvation in Christ alone. But covenant theology says no. Uh, the Old Testament was always pointing forward to what God was about to do in Christ. It was always pointing those Old Testament believers not to find their righteousness and observance of the law, but to look forward to the Christ who was yet to come. The New Testament looks back to the Christ who has come, and so we see that fundamental unity. And so that, that is important. We're going to spend a lot more time on this when we get to chapter 11. Uh, so hold on to that. But it is helpful as we, as we look at these things. And even today, chapter 1 really is setting up this argument for covenant theology against what is outside, that is dispensationalism broadly. Chapter 2 is making a distinction within covenant theology between people that believe that the covenants extend most of human history and those like us who believe that it extends to all of human history. So chapter one is an inside-outside debate. Chapter two is an inside-inside debate. And so it's just helpful to, to get the lay of the land and to understand that. And you might not pick that up if you're just, uh, just sort of uninitiated and, and reading this. Good. So it helps us to have something to argue against. It helps us to understand the unity of the scriptures. What else is the value for studying uh, covenant? Steve Barry.
absolutely. So when we see it uh, brought together, we see the way that it, that it really does hold together. And, and, and you can see that when you look at Christ in the New Testament. Christ is the promised seed of Abraham. There's a covenant for us. Christ is the king uh, who was to sit on David's throne. There's another Old Testament covenant for us. Christ is the Passover lamb. There's another Old Testament uh, covenant for us. Christ is the second Adam who does what the first Adam lost. And we can see all of this covenantal language, all of God's promises, coalescing in what God is doing in Christ. Absolutely. Chapter 3, next week, is all about this unity and wrestling with uh, what do we do with these, these different things? Uh, how do these things fit together? And I, I like the point that Steve made as well. There is a reason that dispensationalism exists, and the reason is not that we're believers and they're not, right? Uh, this is not like us pointing across an aisle at our, our dispensational Baptist brothers and sisters and saying, if only you could read the Bible. Uh, this is them looking at it and having a slightly different interpretation and understanding themes and emphases differently than we do, uh, but yet we say dispensationalists are brothers and sisters too. Let's work together to understand the best way to see how scripture fits together. Good, thank you. Anything else? Value of, of covenant theology. Landon. It helps you, yeah, not only, not only does it give you a, a framework in your mind uh, for what God is doing, but it helps you to read the scriptures, right? When you, when you dig into the scriptures, you have, you have a framework that you can lay it on top of that you say, what is God doing? Well, here, okay, uh, what's happening with these kings? Well, what's the covenant promise here? What's the... Uh, the, the threat or the curse for covenant breaking. How do we see this playing out, and how is this preparing us for the new covenant? Yeah, so it helps us to orient ourselves uh, where we are. Let me suggest a, a few other benefits of studying covenant theology. Not only does it help us to understand uh, what God is doing in history and in Scripture, but it helps us to understand our relationship with the Lord. It helps us to, to grow in a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation for who is this God who has made us his. This really is, is one of the areas that, uh, that gave birth uh, to the idea for this class. Uh, Mike Lee was the one who, in a session meeting a while ago, said, you know, I was preparing for that class in practical theology dealing with, uh, with sexual purity and really got to dig into the parallels between the marriage covenant and, and God's covenant with his people. And those are relationships, right? And if you're married or you want to be married, you should want to know everything you can about marriage because that will help you to grow in an understanding of who you're supposed to be and who your spouse will be and, uh, and the commitments you make to one another. It's the same way with the Lord. When we understand his covenant commitments and his covenant faithfulness to us, we grow in an appreciation for what God is doing, not just in scripture, not just in history, but in our lives as well. Kathy.
Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Teresa. Yes, ma'am. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. Uh, when we dive into chapter 1, he, he, he has this distinction, right? Uh, covenants, last will and testament. What are we doing? Uh, and, and he even points out in the reading, if you, if you glance down at the footnotes, uh, he says the reader will appreciate the fact that I have to make a distinction between testament and covenant while I'm talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, and so just, just that little, hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to that. That's an excellent question, and I think really is helpful for us to understand. You know, it comes in the context of him talking about this bond in blood, uh, God's commitment to his people, uh, and his covenantal commitment. How far will God go to maintain his promises to us? I think that's what that's all about. Uh, and, and so hold on to that. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Uh, before we do, I, I want you to turn with me. Uh, if you have uh, a Trinity hymnal, I, it looks like Greg's already got the page. Chapter 7 in the Westminster Confession is all about God's covenant. Do you have the page number there, Greg? 852-852-852. There is a whole chapter in our Westminster Confession about God's covenant with man. Uh, and you may notice it comes very early in the Confession. Uh, the early chapters of the Confession are setting the groundwork the early chapters of the Confession talk about Scripture, talk about God, talk about God's providence, His eternal decrees. They talk about uh, man and creation of man and the fall into sin. In fact, it's not even until chapter 8 that we talk about Jesus Christ, the mediator, and between our fall into sin and Jesus Christ, the mediator, we get chapter 7, God's covenant with man. So you can see, even just by the placement within our Confession, how foundational this is for our reformed theology and understanding of scripture. But I want us just to look at, at chapter 7, section 1 today, and I want you to see this, and, and I'm thinking about this again in terms of understanding our relationship with God. It says, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, Yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Now, if you have a version like I do with the scripture proofs, you will notice that the scripture proofs for this first section are not about the individual covenants that we see but all of the scripture proofs are about this idea of the distance between creator and creation. And this is where we need to begin to understand what covenants are. Uh, there is this gap, this uncrossable distance. We talked about this a little bit last week in uh, our study in Hebrews. But last week we were talking specifically about a moral distance between uh, our God and us. Uh, and that is part of it here. But it's not just a moral distance that's in mind. It's not even just a temporal distance that God is finite and we're stuck where we are. It's what we would call an ontological distance. It is a distance of being, the fundamental distinction that there is one creator 
and everything else is his creation. And that means that we can never attain, we can never grow to understand God's mind, uh, his will, his decisions for us, his plans for our future, his working in creation, unless he's the one who steps down and initiates to us. That's the idea of covenant. You'll notice also in the reading, um, let me find the page, and then we'll actually get into the, into the text here. Um, where was it? This past, uh, page eight, page eight, uh, and looking at the footnote at the bottom of page eight, uh, it says a further indication, this is the last paragraph in that page, a further indication of the permeating significance of this phrase, that is, uh, of cutting the covenant. The significance of this phrase is found in the fact that it is related to all three of the basic covenant types. It's employed to describe covenants inaugurated by man with man. So sometimes men cut covenants with men. Uh, it's used to uh, describe covenants inaugurated with, between God with man, top down, uh, and covenants inaugurated by man with God. Now, wait a minute. I, I thought covenant was top down, but look at his footnote here. These covenant relations initiated by man with God should be understood in the context of covenant renewal. It is only on the basis of a relation previously existing that man may presume to covenant with God. And he's got a couple uh, proof texts there for you as well to look up. And so even when we talk about, uh, in, in our passage today, in our Old Testament reading, we're going to look at Joshua chapter 8, where there is a covenant renewal ceremony after the defeat of Ai. The people were defeated by Ai because they broke covenant with the Lord. They found out the sin, the sin of Achan. Uh, they dealt with the sinner and removed him from the people. And then they defeated Ai, and the first thing they do is renew their covenant with the Lord in the land. Well, on what basis can they renew their covenant? Well, God has condescended. God has graciously stooped down and said, I'm going to make promises for you in the land, but these promises come with stipulations. And so even when we see humanity taking the initiative, and when we see people being baptized or baptizing their babies, when we see us coming to the Lord's Supper, and we think of these covenant signs as these are our declarations to the world, that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we believe that he's coming back, that we are his people. We so often think about those as things that we do, but it's God's covenant sign that is his condescension for us. Does that make sense, everybody? That means that baptism is a gracious sign that God gives us, and we receive it as a recognition that it's his blessing to communicate his covenant faithfulness to us, not our decision to stand up and say, look what I have decided. Now, there is another element that, that that's a part of that, too. But we'll talk about uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper more when we begin to talk about some of those other things. Anything anybody else wants to say uh, about the benefit of covenants generally before we dig into the text itself? Greg.
yes, I, I'm looking for uh, I can't find it. I bet Landon knows it. Uh, catechism question, maybe larger, maybe shorter. With whom does God make the covenant of grace? Have any idea? Put you on the spot. It's not in the shorter, it's probably in the larger. Uh, so, trust me, uh, go look it up later. The question uh, says, uh, with whom does God or did God make the covenant of grace? And uh, in fact, this question was asked in the floor of Presbytery to a young man who was being examined yesterday. And he said, God makes the covenant of grace with Adam and Eve after the fall. Well, he does make the covenant with Adam and Eve after the fall. And he descends and says, I will put enmity and I will destroy the seed and, and all these other things. But the answer that the catechism gives is God makes the covenant of grace with Christ and with all who are united to him by faith. So it is that how do we partake of God's covenant goodness for his people? Well, we become a part of that people. We become branches joined to and abiding in the vine. That's the only way. There is no direct line between God's goodness and human sinners that does not include union with Jesus Christ. Right? There is no way from sinners to God without a mediator. And that's who Christ is for us. And he also is the mediator of the, that grace to all of his people. And so it helps us. I think Greg's exactly right helps us to see not only the unity of the scriptures, but the unity of believers. That we're one in body with Christ Jesus, and we are his people, not just his person. Good. Anything else before we get into the text? We could do this all day, I bet. All right, uh, let's take a look then at, at, uh, at this chapter. Uh, chapter 1 uh, is, again, I mentioned that chapter 1 is a sort of inside-outside definition of what covenant is all about, and the point of chapter one is to define what a covenant is. Now, we've got this pretty pithy little statement. I actually like the way that Robertson builds, so he starts with the idea of a covenant as a bond, which we can all wrap our minds around because we have bonds today, and then he builds on that. Well, it's a bond in blood. Well, we don't have things like that normally, uh, and then it's a bond in blood sovereignly administered, so, so that's where he gets us eventually, but pretend I didn't just say that and you haven't already read it. How would you define covenant? Because one of the things that he says at the beginning, uh, he starts by saying, uh, you know, uh, this idea, what is a mother? Well, you, <laughs> you could say a mother is the person who brought you into the world, but who would be satisfied with such a definition? Uh, we could give lots of definitions of a covenant, but it really is this sort of manifold concept that we have a hard time wrestling with or, or, or getting a hold of. So how would you define a covenant? Are there elements that Robertson has, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> just the COVID. Uh, are there elements that Robertson uh, has, that's a joke, uh, that he's put in that you disagree with or things that he's left out that you would add? Okay. Contract with consequences. I like that. Um, uh, you know, most contracts come with consequences. But 
I think to emphasize what's going on here, uh, we have a tendency uh, in, um, in our human relationships to want to eliminate consequences. It was about 70 years ago that Massachusetts became the first state to initiate a no-fault divorce. Now, every state in the country has provisions for a no-fault divorce, and I'm told by people who have gone through it in Massachusetts now that you almost cannot get anything but a no-fault divorce. Even when there is fault, it's very hard to get the courts to acknowledge and to put blame anywhere and so we try to remove the consequences of all of our contracts. It's important for us to understand that when God enters a contract, he, or enters uh, this contractual relationship, this covenant relationship with his people, there are consequences for keeping and breaking. I, I like that. Mike. So, so the requirements um, and the commitment, you know, uh, I'm a little too old, but I hear from Pastor Andrew, who works with our youth, that, that young people in relationships have this uh, DTR moment, define the relationship moment. Well, do you like me or do you like like me? Like how, how much? Like how commit, where are we? And when you're starting out in a relationship, very often there are lots of those, where are we? How committed are we? What's going on? And God spells out his commitment in his covenant. He doesn't leave it to our imagination. Well, how committed are you? Well, uh, John 13 says that Jesus, having loved his people, he loved them to the end. That's the idea that Robertson's going to bring up the ultimacy of the covenant, this idea of life and death. God is, is not only bringing in life and death as a consequence, but life and death as an expression of his commitment. How far does the Lord love his people? He loves them to death and resurrection. Absolutely. Is that the question? Good. Thank you. Yeah, so you can, was the answer correct? Good. Thank you. <laughs> Larger Catechism 31. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it. Anything else that you would add or change or, or just something that you like, your thoughts? This is book discussion, so I'll take your thoughts, too. Uh, just what do you think about Robertson's uh, definition? Scott? In, in what sense? Course correction. Yes. Yes. So course correction. And that's important, again, as we're reading scripture, understanding what God is doing. You may have heard before whether I was teaching through an Old Testament prophet. We went through Amos and Malachi not too long ago. Or Andrew teaching through Hosea uh, last year on our Zoom classes. Uh, sometimes the Old Testament prophets are called uh, covenant uh, lawsuit um, prosecutors. Thank you for that word. So this, this idea that what do we find the prophets doing? Well, leaning on what God has already said. We tend sometimes to think of prophecy as telling you what's about to come, but very often the prophets are coming back and saying, 
God has given you a law, you are breaking it, and these curses are going to be invoked. And you can go back to Deuteronomy 28, and you can see, well, what are the, uh, Leviticus 28, and you can see, what are the curses? Well, they're right there. And you can, you can connect them to what God has already said. So it's this course correction. It's God always shepherding, always leading his people. Good. And so, and, and so that comes uh, on the basis of that, that contract, that bond, where God has given us directives and, and directions for this. Okay? Uh, so the idea of a bond. What are some of the contemporary covenants that we have? Where do we find them uh, around us? Uh, and, uh, and how do they relate <clears throat> to what we see uh, in God's word? What are some covenants you can think of today? I've already mentioned the marriage covenant, so that's the low-hanging fruit there. Uh, Cynthia. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and there is a consequence if you go AWOL. Right? You can't just decide, I'm done. <laughs> I think I'll go home now. Good, yeah, so somebody entering the military. Jay? And, and with a, a property contract, uh, you can use that to defend your rights, right? You can, you can take that to bear on someone else and say, no, 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 I have this piece of paper, and it's been notarized, and you signed it. Um, yeah, yeah, good. And, and so it, it reminds us and it holds us accountable. I saw Scott, and then Greg. Uh, we'll go on. If you complain long enough, uh, right, you, you, can, you can get that forgiven, and you don't have to pay back what you owe. Hey, man, I, I know I do. <laughs> I saw Greg and then, and then Tim. Kids in, in classrooms all over the country every morning of the week pledging allegiance to the United States of America. That's an oath. That's entering into a relationship in a contract. Same thing when citizens join. Uh, other ideas there? I saw Chris and then Steve. And then Steve, and then, then we'll, uh, we'll add to this discussion a little bit. Uh, being, a member of a church. being a member of a church. Yes, we're going to see that today. We're going to have uh, the Lavallees come and make their vows of membership publicly. You'll get to see them enter into a covenant 
Uh, in many churches, remember when we were worshiping at Carlisle Congregational, uh, they had their membership covenant up on a wall. As soon as you walked in, uh, the main entrance from that little uh, round uh, driveway area, it was on the right side and you could see it. And lots of churches have that and they, they paste it where uh, members can be reminded when they, they come in and they go out. Uh, what have you agreed to do together with God's people? Good. Now, in, uh, in this chapter, when he was talking about uh, a covenant as a bond, uh, he said a, a few things that I think are important. One uh, comes to bear on what we've already talked about with this idea of condescension. So on page six, um, the, the first full paragraph says, the formalizing element essential for the establishing of all divine covenants in scripture is a verbalized declaration of the character of the bond being established. God speaks to establish his covenant. He speaks graciously to commit himself to his creatures and declare on the basis on which he shall relate to his creation. Here is this idea of God stooping low. We cannot... Uh, rope God into an agreement. We cannot make him commit to us. Uh, we don't have that ability. We don't have that right. Uh, but God has the ability to bind himself to his people. It's interesting when you think about that, uh, that God is the one who is outside external restraint. We're restrained by all sorts of things external to us, right? I can't fly if I wanted to because it's not in my nature because I'm a human being and not a bird. Uh, I can't do math very well because I don't have the intelligence. Uh, all sorts of things. I can't travel forward. We can think of all the, the limitations that we have. God has no limitations except what he himself, by his nature, uh, imposes upon himself. Scripture does tell us a few things that God can't do. God can't lie. He can't deny himself. That's because of his nature, who he is. But in covenant, it's interesting to see God binds himself to his people. He does it by a sovereign declaration. He stoops down and, and enters into relationship and says, I will do this, and he declares his covenant to us. Often when he declares his covenant to us, and this is the point of the, the opposite uh, page, on page seven, he uses signs. Uh, this is this condescension idea, the graciousness, uh, that he speaks to us in ways that we can see and hear and understand, right? Uh, so he uses human speech. He uses symbols like a rainbow and passing under a rod and uh, the, the sign of circumcision and all sorts of other signs. Now, what do these signs uh, add to our understanding of covenant? W what were you struck by maybe in that section or what, what were you helped to understand there? importance of signs and how they help us to understand our faith. Dave. That's a transition that we needed as I just looked at the clock for the first time in a while. Um, so let's move on from a bond, which we're familiar with, to a bond in blood. And back to Teresa's question. So Dave says uh, that in a covenant, the death is, uh, the punishment of death is symbolized at the beginning 
so that we can see the seriousness of the relationship. Now, when uh, Robertson talks about the, uh, the bond in blood, he talks about ultimacy. He talks about God committing himself in, in life and death situations or with life and death ramifications to his people. He talks about the fact that God never enters an informal relationship with his people. He's never like, well, you, you, I suppose you could be my people, maybe. We'll hang out a little bit. No, no, no. Uh, God is committed. And he shows us through these signs, particularly in some of the covenant signs like circumcision, uh, like the Lord's Supper, like baptism, uh, he shows us how committed he is. And this brings up the distinction that he was making in, in, the, second, or in the, the second section uh, between, um, uh, what is this, a, a, a covenant and a testament, right? So it's built on the idea of cutting, and we understand that we'll see more about that when we talk about Abraham and the idea of cutting the animals apart uh, and passing between the pieces of the animals. And that's a way of both covenant parties saying, if I break the covenant, so shall it be done to me. And he, he quotes in a Jeremiah passage that their, their bodies will be food for the birds of the heavens. Uh, that's invoking the curse of death if you become a covenant breaker. And graciously, we'll see it when we get to Abraham, Abraham is out of it. A deep darkness descends upon him, and he's over there somewhere in the corner, and a, a smoking pot uh, passes, and a flaming torch passes between uh, the elements. God is invoking the covenant curse on himself if Abraham breaks the covenant, which he knows he will. So we got this idea of the ultimacy of the covenant expressed in these signs that teach us about life and death uh, and violent, bloody curses. What does this have to do with the distinction between a covenant and a testament? That was your question, right? How, how do we understand this? Maybe somebody else can help Teresa uh, understand. What is Robertson getting at with the distinction between a testament and a covenant, and what does it matter? Scott, and then Steve. Is, is death required to activate a covenant? No. No. You can be in a relationship without death if you can keep the covenant. <laughs> so there's, there's one distinction. Um, uh, Scott says that in a testament, and, and again, think of the idea here as a last will and testament. You, you've got your children. You're setting your affairs in order. When I die, I want them to have this. Now, when you're making that last will and testament, you're doing it because your death is assumed as a matter of course, right? I know that someday I'll die, so I need life insurance. I know that someday I will not be here, so I need to set my affairs in order. But in a covenant, death is symbolized, and then it becomes a curse, right? So if we could keep God's covenants, if Adam had kept the covenant of works in the garden, there would be no need for death and sacrifice. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Steve, you're going to help us understand this even further. Thank you. 
Yeah, so, so a testament, uh, and um, you think about, uh, so Steve's telling us about the inviolability, which I really like, because I bet most of you have seen situations like that in your extended family. You know exactly what he's talking about. Um, when you think about a testament, um, it really is dealing with what will happen after the relationship is broken by death. Who will get what? It's a contingency for the inevitability of a broken relationship. Right? The deceased will be gone. They won't be able to divide their, their estate, the inheritance, and so we're going to write it down, and, and depending on uh, who is in uh, the favor uh, of this rich uncle, they may rise or fall. Uh, but a covenant is establishing a relationship with the threat of death at the very beginning. If I break this, so may it happen to me. This is the important thing about uh, the, the distinction that he's making, which, I, which is, is why I think uh, it's in here, um, is, is that in a, in a covenant, death is the consequence for breaking the covenant. Now, why is that important when we apply it to Christ? Well, he goes on at the end to tell us, because then we understand Christ as our substitute. Right? Uh, if uh, the Lord's Supper is Jesus telling his people, well, I came to die, and I know I'm going to die, but I need you to know what you're going to have when I'm gone. If that's all it is, uh, then his death is just a matter of fact. If the Lord's Supper, which is the passage that he, he quotes, if that is a covenant ceremony, then Christ says, here's what I'm giving you, and the way you can have it is the fact that I'm taking what you deserve instead. Does that make sense, that distinction? Right? That Christ dies in our place. We are covenant breakers. We don't deserve an inheritance. We don't deserve to be part of the family. We don't deserve any grace or gifts. But Christ takes the covenant punishment that we deserve so that we can take the covenant blessing that he deserves. Galatians chapter 3. God made him to become a curse for us so that we might receive the blessing, uh, the promise given to Abraham that we should receive the promised spirit of God. Why can we receive the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus Christ is our covenant substitute because he's taken the punishment we deserve for breaking God's covenant. I saw a hand in the back, Jay, and then Cynthia. And Cynthia. Yep. Yep. That's a good big question. 
Um, so why is it called the Old and the New Testament? Well, Steve wants to answer that question. <laughs> and in fact, we, we do have language of testament even in our Westminster, right? Um, and so, so it's important to know that, that it divides Old and New Testament according to Christ, who is the testator uh, or testator, depending on how you want to pronounce that, um, if you like potatoes or not, testator or testator. Um, so there's this division between what happens in the Old, what happens in the New based on Christ's death. Uh, but there is, there's more to it than just that, and Steve's going to clarify that. And my Greek New Testament, when you open it, it says Novum Testamentum, uh, which is Latin, uh, which is not Greek. <laughs> so, uh, and so that heading there, um, yeah, so I, I agree with you, Steve. Uh, now, who, who holds this testament idea? Well, you can read the footnotes if you want. Meredith Klein is one person that holds to this testament idea. There are others, and quite frankly, others that I'm not familiar with. And so I, I can't really speak to that. Um, but I think that the point is, let's not lessen uh, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ by calling it anything less than an actual covenant with life and death consequences, right? It's not just Jesus on the night of his betrayal bequeathing good gifts to his people. It's him drawing their attention to the fact that he is our Passover lamb who is sacrificed so that we may be saved. I think that's the point. To summarize this first chapter, uh, he ends by saying a covenant is not just a bond, it's a bond in blood, it's a bond in blood sovereignly administered, and he doesn't spend a lot of time on that, but we actually have already spent a lot of time on that. This idea of condescension, the, the idea of, of God uh, stooping down, and we need that, we want that, right? If our faith is based on our initiation, if covenants are things that we can bind God to, well then a covenant is as fickle as we are. But... Uh, if a covenant is divinely, sovereignly administered, then the faithfulness of the covenant promises depend not on us, but on the Lord. This is something that we always have to come back to over and over and over again. We come to the covenant table at the end of every, uh, every worship service, and we come realizing that we don't deserve to come. <laughs> Each one of us has been fickle in following the Lord in the previous week, and if it was up to our piety and our faithfulness, nobody would get to come. But the covenant meal is there for God's people because he's the one who divinely administrates it and keeps it and maintains his promises. And so that's what we need to understand there. Now, the second chapter, uh, in 30 seconds, uh, this, is, this is an internal uh, uh, debate. 
essentially, there are some people, and, and it, it really happened with the rise of what's called form criticism, uh, where we look at specific elements in the scripture, uh, where we look at uh, is the language of covenant used or not used, and trying to, to restrict covenant to only very, very specific instances. And if we do that, we lose uh, what scripture says. I, I think uh, he makes a, a pretty convincing argument from Jeremiah and Hosea. Uh, and, and the argument he makes essentially is just the classic reformed argument that God is in covenant with Adam even before the fall, even though it's not called a covenant in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and that's important because uh, all of our relationship, even to the beginning of our relationship with the Lord in, in our first head, Adam, is covenantal. And covenant breaking implies covenant curse. And what we need is a covenant keeper, right? So if we understand that God's covenant extends all the way to Adam in the garden, then what we're looking for in the language of Romans in the New Testament is a second Adam. We're looking for one, unlike Hosea, uh, where uh, just like Adam, they broke my covenant. No, we're looking for one who will come and will keep God's covenant perfectly. Does that make sense? All right. Um, we're out of time. <laughs> my fault. Uh, sorry about going over as usual. Uh, Scott is going to pick up next week. He's going to cover just chapter three, correct? Or are we still? Okay. Just three. Three is long enough to keep us moving. Uh, so just chapter three for next week. If you don't have a copy of the book, let me know. I'll get one to you, or you can get one for yourself. And again, if you use Hoopla, you can get it free as an audio book. You can listen to it as a supplement to reading it. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your covenant faithfulness. We pray that you would be the one who keeps us faithful to you. Thank you for Jesus Christ our substitute. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.